Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Yeah, welcome back, you. Happy, uh, happy Friday, everybody. TGIF. You made it through another work week. Yes. Unless you work weekends, as uh, as we happen to do as pastors, and, mm. and it's uh, still exciting that it's Friday. It's like every day's Friday for us, though. It, it is. Because it? the weekend and the excitement that comes with it, the anticipation, it's always there. It's always there. It's always there. So, um, yeah, happy Friday. Wherever you may be listening to us, we hope that you're having a good one and uh, that you have plans to attend church this weekend and join us for our Bible study on Sunday night as we continue our study of Revelation in the seven churches right now as we get ready for this church plant launch. But uh, we're here to talk about the daily Bible reading. And uh, yep. this this uh, morning's passage is Second Chronicles 29 through 31 and then uh, the first half of John 18. So Second Chronicles 29, uh, we, we finally get to a, a king who... Is overall a pretty good dude. I like King Hez. Yeah, he's Hez- a good guy. Hezekiah was uh, he had he had the right priorities, and, and I I think we see that right off the bat. The first thing he does, it says, first month, first year of his reign. There, he begins to go after the temple and restore the temple and put it back in its right place because the temple had become a a den of iniquity. Essentially, I mean, people were worshiping false gods in there, and then eventually the worship just stopped. And, uh, and so Hezekiah is after consecrating it and cleansing it and getting it ready and, and going through this, this house clean. And yet it, what I found profound in this is, is Hezekiah had a very clear understanding of why Israel was in the, the place they were, why they were suffering under the, the judgment of God. And oh, he, he brings that out. Tell us more. When he says, uh, hear me, Levites, consecrate yourselves. And then he says in verse six, for our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They've forsaken him and turned away their faces from the inhabitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They mm. also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of God came on on Israel. So Hezekiah, he knows, he understands. Finger on the pulse. And gets the, the picture and goes about saying, let's do something about this. He's not just going to let things go status quo. He's not just going to bemoan the fact and, and as an individual say, well, I'm going to seek after the Lord. He's, he's after, no, we need a corporate repentance, which we're going to see in the rest of this, this, uh, these three chapters here, but it begins with the cleansing of the temple. 16 days, 16 days, eight to know. clean it, eight to, eight to consecrate it. Yeah. Well, and, and then I was reading about this. Apparently it was eight for the outer courts and then mm. eight for the inner courts, the, yeah. the actual inner temple itself. That would make sense. Um, I don't know how messy your kids' rooms have ever gotten, but never 16 days worth. Have you seen my kids' rooms, though? No. Okay. Well, no. There you, okay. But you 16 days. Over. 16 days. It's a long time. And you'll notice it, it's it, there's attention even given to the parameters and the, the boundaries here because it's the priests that go inside the temple to cleanse out the, the stuff that's wicked and evil and detestable, and they're bringing this out, and then the Levites take it from the priests, and they go burn it in the kidron there that's 
that's outside the city. And then you've got the Levites that are cleaning the temple courtyard there. Mm-hmm. So the temple's consecrated, the temple's prepared, the temple's cleansed. And then Hezekiah calls for this national uh, rededication of the temple where he offers a bunch of burnt offerings. And the thing that struck me here about Hezekiah is he cares, not again, not just for the individual, but he cares deeply for the Lord and for all of Israel. He's passionate, not even just for Judah either. He's passionate for Judah to get right with the Lord. And he's also passionate for Israel to get right with the Lord. He wants the 12 tribes restored and he wants them all to be right with the Lord. And we see this even as he's offering the sacrifices. He instructs the, the priests there in verse 24 uh, to, to slaughter them and offer these sin offerings for the atonement for all Israel. Um, and then when we get down into 30 in the Passover, he's calling for all Israel and all these tribes to come and celebrate. So Hezekiah is is just, he's doing things right as we get started here. Yeah, I, I really appreciated how he starts from the top or, uh, top upper echelons of Israel's religious worship. You, you pointed out here, he starts with the Levites. Hear me, Levites, he says in that first section from verses 3 onward. And then verse 20, he looks to the officials and says, okay, you leaders of Israel, you're not exempt from this either. Let's make sure to get you right and then finally, uh, near the end of that chapter, chapter 29, he turns his attention to, to everybody, the assembly. Come near, he says. So after sanctifying and setting apart the temple and setting apart the people of the temple, he's able to say to all people now, yeah, draw near, come close. He is very much acting in the way that the Messiah will act to mediate two parties. He does a phenomenal job of this with intense focus and dedication. I love verse 36 in chapter 29. It says, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people for the thing came about. Suddenly, there's joy that's brought about here. Like this is... This is revival, bro. Yeah. yeah. This is straight up revival. Genuine, le- legitimate revival. Not not man-made, not forced, but... Well, I think even in chapter 32, as we make our way there, you, you'll see marks of what a genuine revival looks like. Right. And there's a lot. That joy is, is a huge thing, but it continues on. As you read through chapter 30, you'll notice elements of what a true spiritual revival looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And getting into 30, again, Hezekiah calls for, for everybody. Again, not just Judah, not just the, the the part that he was responsible for, but even those tribes that have rebelled. It says there that he called for all Israel and Judah, and he writes them all letters to say, come back, come and let's observe the Passover together. Let's get back right with the Lord. In verse five, it says from Beersheba to Dan. And that may be something that you've read before. We, we read those the boundary markers a lot. Basically, that that's the southernmost most part in Israel all the way to the northernmost part. You get up to Dan, you're right at the tributary to the Jordan River there in the far northern regions. So when it says there in your Bibles from Beersheba to Dan, basically, he's just saying the entirety of the nation. He's sending these letters everywhere, calling on people to return to the Lord. And that becomes a theme in the first part of chapter 30. Return to the Lord, he says there in verse 6. And then if you jump down to verse 9, for if you return to the Lord, uh, he says you'll eventually return to this land. And then he goes on and he says, the Lord is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So basically, this revival begins with a national call for repentance, mm. it, to, for Israel to to stop doing what they're doing. Uh, it, the repentance in the in the Greek, at least, is an about face. It's a military command. It's it's to change direction completely, and that's what uh, that's what Hezekiah was calling on his own people to do. But that's what he was also calling on all of Israel to do. Yeah, and that's the cool thing. Revival seems to have indicators of unity, but a unity toward a turning from faithlessness to a firm confidence and trust in God. And of course, King Hezi, he's echoing what Moses says here in Exodus 34. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And I love this facet because you can emphasize God's wrath, his justice, and and that's true. God has wrath that stems from his justice. He's a a, uh, precise and perfect God. 
And, however, I might say, God is also gracious and merciful. What great kindness God shows to his people. He gives them one heart. He turns them from Dan to Beersheba, or Beersheba to Dan. He does this corporately as, a, as an entire nation. So Israel and Judah haven't seen this kind of thing, really. I mean, this is, a, this is a, an incredible work of the Spirit of God in their time. And again, it's marked by joy. It's marked by gladness. So much so that after the seven days of observing the Feast of Passover, they look at each other and they... Let's do this some more. Let's do it again. Take two. Keep the party going. Yep. And so they, they go another seven days celebrating and rejoicing and uh, in just the Lord's goodness and kindness uh, to them. And it says an amazing statement in verse 26. It says, There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Incredible. Yeah. It, this is a, a banner occasion. And, and even as we're thinking about it as our examples to our kids, maybe, or our examples, even just to other Christians in general, is there a joyfulness about our worship? Do we, do we wear the, the, the thanksgiving and the, the joy that we should when it comes to worship or is worship more kind of just this rote obligatory thing that we have to go and do? Right. Um, the, the Psalms that talk about entering his gates with thanksgiving, with joyfulness, with, with praise, it was a, a celebratory thing. It was not this morose thing that we just did because we had to do it, and it's just duty over over delight. No, there there is a delight that should accompany our worship, and we need to model that to other people as well. So, what would you say then? Because I would agree entirely. I mean, clearly, this is a work of the Spirit. God is at work; He's stirring them up. If we could give our our church or listeners some advice on how to bring a joyful spirit when they're not feeling it, or if they're feeling like that sense of spiritual malaise, what are some things that you might suggest? Well, to, to borrow a, a quote that one of your favorite authors and, and preachers took actually from the scriptures. Only uh, mine, but not yours. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Uh, Pastor John Piper, he talks about sorrowful yet always rejoicing, right? Okay. And I think that's important for us to bear in mind. And, and I remember him in a, a message he gave to preachers saying, you need to understand when you're preaching that there are going to be people that are in your congregation who are suffering right now. Mm-hmm. And so as you're calling them to joy, you need to understand that you're calling some to joy who are in the midst of very dark and, and difficult seasons of their life. Right. And yet he said there is a, a way to have that joy. Um, we're even going to look at that this Sunday night in our study of the, the letter of the church in Philadelphia, which was a, a situation where they were a, a small church, an impoverished church. They didn't have a lot going well with them. And what Jesus did in that context to encourage them is he pointed them to the the, the eternal state. Is he, he wanted them to to think about the things that, that were going to last. What's going to matter, as we've often heard before, what's going to matter 100 years from now? Yeah. And so I think even then there's a way for us to find joy in the midst of our, our trial, even as we're preparing to go to church by remembering, man, I'm going, this is a rehearsal for an eternity where I'm going to be in the presence of Christ. I'm going to be in the presence of God in my worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ here is going to be so much better there because all of us are going to do that and we're going to be free from sin. And so we get to go to like a, a dress rehearsal for that day mm-hmm. as we go to worship the Lord together now. It doesn't make the pain and the sorrow and the hurt go away, but it changes our perspective from the here and now to the then and there. So it's kind of like you're saying we're, we're letting our faith inform our feelings. Our feelings have to be subjugated to our utter faith in Christ. The ultimate expression of our dependence, the ultimate expression of our joy comes from the fact that he ultimately wins. Our bad feelings, wherever they may be coming from, are probably evidence and effects of the fall. But because Jesus is conquered, Jesus is ruling and reigning, and someday he will establish that rule and reign here on earth, we can have confidence and put our feelings aside in order to rejoice in him and fight for that joy in Christ, to quote, (laughs) loosely quote, that same author that you talked about earlier. 
Chapter 31, uh, Hezekiah keeps going and uh, does what he's supposed to do, he's organizing fine, man. the priests. I love this guy. And, uh, yeah. He scratches my little organizational itch. Like, this guy, is, he's about joy, he's about reform, and he's also about organization. Hey, that's a gift of God, bro. It Organizing, is. so good. It is. He would have used Todoist. He would have used He probably would things. have. Yeah. Notion, all the good things. He here. would have done it all. But I love the way our reading uh, today ends, at least in the Old Testament, in verse 21, where it says, Every work he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Yep. We've talked about it before on this podcast, but that's one of the main themes in, in Second Chronicles and First Chronicles is seeking God and seeing God respond. So Hezekiah prospers because he was doing everything that he was doing, seeking the Lord. Yeah, and, and, and not in a half-hearted way, as we saw with Amaziah. He had his whole heart engaged in this matter, and that's in part why God blessed him. One other thing I want to point out to you is in the chapter 31, another mark, I think, of God's working in the people, reviving them, is that they were generous. They gave to the Lord's work. They brought they brought what they needed to bring so that the Levites could spend their time, uh, as, as he puts it here, to give themselves to the law of the Lord. Um, I see some obvious parallels in the New Testament, but just note, when God's at work in people, man, God's people's pockets get opened. They want to do what God wants them to do. They want to give to God's cause. I love yeah. that. Yeah. We get into the, the New Testament, and uh, we've now left the upper room, and we are in the garden. And uh, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you go to Israel today, you can see the location that Jesus and his disciples go to. In fact, there's a, a sign above it that says Gethsemane, and it's a cave, actually. And I, I remember going there and being a little bit taken aback because I was not expecting that. We read nothing necessarily about that, except at the beginning, we do read this line in 18.2. It says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So there we see there was a specific location. And today when you go there, there, you'll go to this cave, and the cave was an ancient olive press. So this is where the olives in the 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 uh, Olive Garden there, not the restaurant, but the (laughs) Garden of Gethsemane, where they would have been gathered. brought in breadsticks there. And, and free salad <laughs> and, and they they would press the olives and and that would be the beginning of the production process well jesus would often go there and retreat there with his disciples sometimes even spending the night there and so this was a, a, a place of shelter so they it, it looks like they initially gather there and this was a place that judas well knew so judas comes and, and goes to betray jesus and there's a couple of things that i love about what we read in the beginning but really all of john 18 but we'll wait to the second half until tomorrow but I think the theme that really emerges here is that Jesus is in full control the whole time. That's right. He, he goes to the garden. He knew that Judas knew exactly where they were going to be. In fact, he puts himself in that same familiar spot because he knows that's where Judas is going to bring everybody. Mm. And then the other thing that I love here that we see from Jesus is his care and concern for the disciples. Because when Judas comes, Jesus steps in between the, the enemy, so to speak, mm-hmm. and his disciples. He goes out to meet him. He doesn't wait in the background and send Peter and John out there to say, hey, go see what's going on. So good. He goes to meet them and says, who, who is it that you seek? And they say, we, we want Jesus. And again, we see his control when he says, I am. And they all immediately fall to the ground. Drop. Um, and if that wasn't enough, right? Like what were they, what did they think happened there? I, I can't imagine that they, because they get back up and they're like, yeah, we want Jesus. We still want to arrest you. Yeah. We just saw heaven and, and, and earth reveal the savior, but hey, we're still going to put the chains on you. <laughs> We still like to do our job. So if you could get over here, Jesus. Right, right. And then again, we see his care and concern for the disciples when he says, uh, they said, uh, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Mm. What an amazing picture. And it's subtle, but what an amazing picture of the bigger uh, 
the, the bigger shield that he was about to provide for us at the cross mm. as he steps in between the full wrath of God that we rightly deserve and us and his sacrifice to the, the heavenly father is enough for him to say, I've, I've paid their penalty. You can let them go. Um, let them go free. That is from the, the the penalty of sin, which is ultimately death. But we see this this care and concern, and then you've got the scene where where Peter goes and, and hits Malchus's ear and cuts it off, and Jesus says, "Hey, put your swords away." And then he gives another glimpse into his control. He says, "Shall I not drink the cup that the the Father has given me?" What kind of cup was, was that? The the cup of his wrath, mm-hmm. right? That that it was the the cup of the wrath that Christ was to drain to its dregs, and I often think of, about this, Pastor Rod, when we take communion together as a church, because we take those little, at least in our church, the the little Itty-bitty plastic cups, cups right? Yeah. And no matter how much you tip that thing up, it, when you when there's you still look back some at left it, over. Yeah, there's always a, a tiny little bit in the ring. So at the annoying. Of the cup. So annoying. Can we get bigger cups at our church? Maybe we'll try a chalice, a chalice. perhaps. <laughs> a shared chalice. Everybody's gonna have their own chalice. <laughs> um, no, but but that always reminds me, man. I I don't even have that tiny little drop left of the wrath of God for me mm, because that. Christ drained it all Paid completely. It all. And that's what he's doing here, but he's, he's in control this whole time. Yeah. One of the things that always strikes me because I think I, I resonate a lot with Peter, the end of chapter 14, we didn't talk about this, but Peter is overconfident and underdependent. He's telling Jesus, Lord, I want to follow you now. I'm going to lay down my life for you. He says in chapter 13, verse 37, and Jesus says, Oh, will you Peter? Oh, that, that's that's so cute. Okay, let me tell you this, buddy. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And of course, in our chapter today, John 18, uh, Jesus is standing trial while Peter is denying him. Oh, what a hard situation. Peter is now going to fall face first into the ground, humbling himself because of his overconfident and underdependent discipleship. Christians, let's be clear. The reason we stand firm is because Christ stands for us, with us, through us, by us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We need him. And on the days that you don't think you need him are the days you probably need him all the more. Mm. Your overconfident, underdependent mentality can be your ruin. And that's exactly what Peter falls for here. I think it's also encouraging when we see that, that our Savior was not afraid. He was mm. not meek in the sense of, of cowering. Uh, fearful for what was taking place. I, I mean, John doesn't record the the prayer to let the cup pass from him in the garden, which is interesting, uh, but it's a, a decision John made not to do that. Right. But sometimes I think we can read that and think, oh man, Jesus was was terrified, timid. He was terrified. Yeah. He was nervous. But I think when we look at Jesus in our reading here before uh, the, the high priest, when he's questioned, Jesus is going toe to toe with him. Say, well, what, what about my teaching? I, I've been teaching publicly on, on the Mount, on the Temple Mount this whole time. Right. And you haven't done anything about it. Where's the charge that's legitimate against me? Right. And so uh, just an, an encouraging picture, again, of the strong Savior that's going before us, that's going toe-to-toe with the enemy, ultimately toe-to-toe with the enemy of death, um, as he's going to uh, go to the cross and then deliver us from our greatest enemy as well. We're thankful for you guys listening. To yes, me we in. are for another episode and we hope this has been a, uh, a blessing to you and we will catch you again tomorrow for another episode of the daily bible podcast see you hey thanks for joining us for another episode of the daily bible podcast we hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the word if it has if you would subscribe to this podcast leave a like leave a comment and share it with some friends and family that would be awesome if you need more information about compass bible church here in north texas you can go to compassntx.org 
Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast.